Please be seated. Uh, last Lord's Day morning, we were in James chapter 1, and, and I don't usually do this, but I'm going to go back behind where we uh, looked at the good and perfect gifts and give you a little bit more of the context um, leading up to that. So usually you, you start and you, you go forward. But, uh, you know, in Hebrew, uh, you do go backwards. Uh, that's the closest justification I can get for this. Other than the fact that I just felt like preaching on temptation and sin, thinking that someone in here would profit from that. And judging by some of you characters who showed up tonight, I think I'm well on track. Uh, so we're in James, and I'll read from verse 12, but focusing mainly on verse 13 to 15, James chapter 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Well, let us ask God to bless his word read and preached. Our Father, we ask for uh, the truth to be preached in accordance with what has been read before our very eyes, that we would see the illumination that comes from above through the Spirit so that these words are deeply meaningful to us, but also practically applied in our everyday lives. We ask this so that we may glorify Christ in all that we do. Amen. One of the, uh, I think, trickiest uh, theological doctrines that you need to be well-versed in, and so not all tricky theological doctrines need to be uppermost in your mind. There are some where you will never know the answer to, I will never know the answer to, and we're not going to be the worse off for it. Um, and uh, I could probably offer a few examples, but... Uh, there is no point at all. Uh, that said, there are some doctrines that are a little bit tricky in just the surface level understanding of them that we do need to be well acquainted with in order to make progress in the life, make sense of things that happen, and so on and so forth. One of those is the doctrine of temptation. The doctrine of temptation is a doctrine that uh, comes up time and time again in the Scriptures. It's one that I think, is frequently misunderstood. And not because people are willingly misunderstanding the doctrine, but because they uh, lack the theological tools to be able to make sense of what is going on. And so tonight I want us to uh, get to the point where we have a little bit more clarity on temptation versus testing, for example. And James offers us that. He's contrasting two sorts of states. The the person who goes through trials and should not be surprised at trials, such as the Christians he's writing to. And uh, as, he, as he writes on in chapter 1, he contrasts that with the, 
the rich person who seems to be doing so well in life and getting all of the blessings and all of these things. And James is trying to say, listen, don't worry about the trials you're going through. Remain steadfast and know that God has offered a promise to those who go through these trials, who suffer, who don't seem to uh, have all of the advantages that come from being extremely wealthy. So again, that's a little bit of the context. And so he talks about the blessed man. The blessed man remains steadfast under trial. There's the idea of uh, a weight on the shoulder. We uh, just got our garage uh, professionally cleaned out. And let me assure you, there's a very big difference between a non-professional cleaning of the garage and a professional cleaning of the garage. I almost didn't recognize what had happened. If you would have uh, said, hey, Mark, you're in the wrong house when I went to the garage, I said, yes, I don't know how this could have happened. But now that it's cleaned out and there's a rowing machine there and I'm looking to get some of those rubber mats, we're seeking to get some weights because, you know, my boys are getting to that age where uh, muscles are cool. And I'm getting to that age where I need them. And we plan to have those bars with the weights on. And uh, the idea that James is speaking of here with these weights is someone who has an incredible weight on them and they're, they're sort of hunched down and trying to keep their legs from collapsing. That's what the trial is like. Someone who remains steadfast under uh, an extreme weight that is upon their shoulders. And many Christians go through these types of, shall we say, workouts over and over again in different forms in their lives. And James says that there is a blessing to such a person who remains steadfast, who doesn't collapse under the weight of the pressures of this world. For when he has stood the test, and now he is speaking about the test of life, basically, that we're always walking around in some sense with a weight. And if I had the gift of caricature, I would say that you always have the bar on your shoulders, but the weight difference will change over the course of your life. There'll be times where you feel as though you've got 300 pounds on your shoulders, and there'll be other days where you feel as though it's just the bar and you can walk around quite easily, and that weight changes. But you always will have a weight to some extent. Nobody lives without a weight on their shoulders. And the promise is that when you have stood the test and you do not collapse, you will receive the crown of life. The crown to victors. The crown to those who love Him. Notice that? He will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him. You have some very great and marvelous promises in the Scripture, and it is interesting to me that coupled with those promises is the response of love to God as a sign of who will inherit those promises. So when you read Romans 8.28, you can't just say, well, all things work together for good. Isn't that wonderful? All things work together for good to those who love God. This promise, this crown of life, that is eternal life, never-ending life, this crown of life is promised to those who love God. So everything works together for good in your life, in this life, if you love God. And if you love God in this life, you will receive the crown of life, which is eternal life. 
and those are great promises, but the connecting point in both of those is, do you love God? And if you love God, you can walk around with that weight on your shoulders because your love for God is your response to God's love for you. So James is setting up the idea then of what it is to be tried and tested and tempted in the Christian life in verses 13 to 15. He wants to be absolutely clear, though, in the midst of these trials that we're not to blame God for a certain type of temptation. So, verse 13, Let no one, let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, this is what's important. James is being absolutely clear what he means and does not mean. So you could say, hey, hang on now. I've read Genesis 22. God tempted or tested Abraham. And now James, who clearly doesn't know his Old Testament, is writing that God doesn't tempt or test anyone. But James is clear what he means by temptation. And what does he mean? Well, I think it can be helpful to distinguish between testing, which God may test us, and inward desire, inward temptation. These trials, these outward trials, these things that happen in our life, can bring with them an inner desire to sin. The desire to sin in the context of the life in which we live is not from God. Now, how can we explain this? Well, John Owen does it over several hundred pages. I'm going to give you one sentence, uh, and I hope you will uh, respond by saying thank you. Uh, Owen says that temptation is any state or condition that has a force to seduce or to draw our mind and hearts from obedience which God requires to any sin in any degree whatsoever. And so Owen, I think, in connection with what James is saying here, is talking about an inward desire. An inward desire where there is evil in our heart that is being lured away from the obedience that God requires. So the trial may be uh, what we would call an outward test. Let's say the outward test is you lack money. And at some point in our life, I'm sure all of us have lacked money and may lack money now or will one day lack money. And when that sort of trial or that test comes, we may have a temptation then to steal or to cheat on our taxes or whatever the case is. Can we say in God's providence that the trial of life in which we find ourselves lacking money has come from God? Absolutely. We can say God has ordered the circumstances of our life. What we cannot say is the desire to want to cheat or steal is from God. That's what James is trying to make clear. Let nobody say, I am being tempted by God. God is causing me to want to steal or cheat. 
Because God cannot give you a desire that is evil. God cannot be tempted with evil. And He Himself tempts nobody. He tempts nobody in the sense that He produces a desire in us that would be contrary to His law. Rather, what is the case? Each person is tempted when not God but when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, desire can carry a neutral force. Desire is not necessarily sinful. We have all sorts of desires, but the way that James is using desire here, the Greek word is epithymia. And this Greek word basically has the force of sinful desire. So if you were to um, go with a sort of uh, new International Version translation. I'm not opposed to the New International Version by any stretch of the imagination. It's very readable and it's quite enjoyable and I'd like it if you read it. Is that enough qualifications? But what they do is they sometimes will add a word here and there to try and help you get to the meaning of what the author is writing. And so you could say, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own evil or sinful desire, his own fleshly desire. That the temptation, the desire, is one that results from the sinful flesh. And James is trying to say, you cannot say that is from God. But what this also tells us is that sin does not begin when the act is committed. Sin begins in the heart through the evil desire. And this desire can lure or drag us away and entice us. And that metaphor comes from fishing, the sort of bait on a hook. And so the desire is that bait that is drawing you away from your obedience to God. And the fish takes the bait and is dragged away. The desire begins in the heart and there is an outward form whereby we may be tested in something and the evil desire latches onto that and we are dragged away. Thomas Watson said that Satan never sets a dish before men that we do not in our sin love. Satan doesn't come to us with things that are easy for us to reject. And we're all different. There are all sorts of temptations that uh, you might face that someone else would not face. Someone can come to me with a nice big pizza and say, ah, Mark, wouldn't you like this pizza? And I'd say, no, I preached about this about a month ago, how I was undone by a pizza. And I know that gluten doesn't do well with me. That carries no temptation whatsoever to me. Now, that is a very mundane example, but there are other things that would not carry any force of temptation with me. There are things that my wife likes that I see no need to like at all. And the things that I like, that she sees no need. Satan knows our constitution, one might say, even better than we do. And knows what our sinful flesh will love and what it will be tempted by. And the scary thing about the life in which we lead is that our temptations never go away, but they will change in their form. So just as there are things that my wife and I would not be tempted by when it comes to each other's temptations, so 
there are sins in my life and your life that may have been temptations at the age of 13 that are no longer a temptation now at the age of 43. However, now at the age of 43, there are temptations that weren't when I was 13. You don't get a break in the Christian life from temptation. They merely change their form. And so, James is talking about our own evil desire. And that is a sin. But it's also a sin that we have to be very careful about because the sin, because it does not begin with the act, but rather from the heart and the desire after God has things God has forbidden, can sometimes then lead to the act. So notice in verse 15, Then desire when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And now, some people get tricked up by this. They say, ah, see, this proves that desire is not sinful. But you see, the Scriptures use words in different ways with different meanings depending on the context. And what James is talking about here, he's not denying that there is such a thing as sinful desire. What he's saying is that then evil desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. He's talking about the actual act, the, the performance of the sin. So when he says there, birth to sin, you could say gives birth to the act of sin. And when the acts of sin are fully grown, they bring forth death. So there's this idea that desire, which is Sinful, if it is misplaced desire, gives birth. So desire is the mother. And sin is the child. And then it is full grown, the teenager. And then there is death, and that is the grandchild. There's the sort of pattern and development that James is speaking about. And we are not to blame God with our inward sinful desires that then lead to acts of sin. And those acts of sin lead to death. Why did we read Proverbs 7 earlier? You actually have what James is talking about in a few verses here carried out in a full picture for you. Go back and read it. The young man just walking by one night and all of a sudden his desire leads him astray. And then it gives birth to an act. And what do the Proverbs say towards the end? It will cost him his life. Just as James says, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Thomas Akempis, he wrote a, a book called The Imitation of Christ. It's not bad. Uh, probably one of those books you, you could read, but I don't think you should read. Um, you know, should read is Augustine's Confessions and Pilgrim's Progress in the Bible. After that, I, there's nothing else you should read. But you could read Thomas Akempis' Imitation of Christ. It's, it's, it's a Christian classic. And he says that first there is the bare thought of sin. And it erupts like a volcano in our heart. The source of which we may or may not know. And anyone who's been a Christian long enough knows that these volcanoes can sometimes erupt in our hearts and we, we wonder even where they came from. Then the thought of sin is turned into a picture, which picture is displayed in the imagination. And Thomas Goodwin, uh, his namesake of sorts, 
talks about how we dance with that imagination. We dance with that sin. And it can be a slow dance or whatever type of dance. And we, we start to be lured away but embrace the sin that we are dancing with. And Kempis continues to say the attractiveness and the pleasure of the sin is then contemplated in the soul and soon the consent of the soul is obtained and the sin is committed. In other words, our imagination stirs our affections which in turn seduce the will and it leads to the act of sin itself. You sometimes hear about people, they could be pastors, they could be Christians, they could be any type of professing believer, and they go and they commit these awful sins. Uh, Bill Hybels, who was so famous in the Christian church, has committed so much sexual immorality. And you, you, you find out these tragic stories of well-known Christians who, who go down a really bad path. And, and do you think that these people who had such great reputations in the evangelical world all of a sudden woke up one day and just decided they were going to go and sleep with countless women? That's not how sin works. Sin begins with the desire. It begins with the mind. And it begins slowly but surely with us allowing sin to have a role in our hearts and minds that should be mortified at the first rising of it. But we allow it to ruminate. We allow it to eventually take place. And then it leads to death. Calvin's friend during the time of the Reformation, asked for help about a dilemma. And the dilemma was that if he were to stay on his substantial estates where he lived, he would have to conform to Rome. He would have to remain a Roman Catholic. But if he gave up, he would face, and if he gave up the Roman Catholic Religion, he would face an uncertain and insecure financial future. So he had to make a decision. And Calvin's reply, what you should do is leave before you are sunk so deep in the mire that you cannot get out. And the sooner you leave, the better. That's the case with every temptation. The sooner you leave that temptation, the better. The longer you allow the temptation, the harder it is. Luther, he says, if you allow one thought to enter and you pay attention to it, the devil will force ten additional thoughts into your mind until at last he overpowers you. Therefore, the best thing that you can do is smack the devil on the nose at the very start. Act like the man who, whenever his wife began to snap at him, drew out his flute from under his belt and played merrily until she was exhausted and let him alone. (laughs) Sorry, that's Luther. It's not Jones. (laughs) I'm just quoting him. Anyone have a flute they can lend me? (laughs) That wouldn't help, I can assure you. Fur does a flute. Now I know why. (laughs) But I I suppose, while I I can't vouch for drawing out the flute from under your belt and playing merrily until 
your spouse may be exhausted, I can vouch for smacking the devil on the nose at the very start. One thing is certain. You read John Owen, you read Martin Luther, you read Calvin, you read these practitioners of the Christian faith, men who knew what they were talking about, they will all say, strike at the first rising. Don't allow the temptation to continue. Because the truth of the matter is, when the devil and the world and sin take root in our hearts, the battle is a lot more powerful than if you were to just strike right away at it. And the battle has caused much hurt, much pain, much agony to many, many Christians. Not just unbelievers, many Christians. Now, by way of conclusion, what was the point that James was making? James is not unaware of God arranging various circumstances in our lives. God is sovereign. Everything that happens, we know God is in control. But you have to understand that though God arranges the circumstances of our life, and though He is the providential God, and we don't view Him as a mere bystander who just looks down upon us, we have to remember that every circumstance is as much an opportunity for righteousness as it is for sin. That's why you can't blame God. Because every time there is a circumstance in which your heart may be led one way or the another, it is an opportunity for your heart to close with the Lord rather than with sin. And Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, one of the, the great chapters on the dangers of sin and temptation, he says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Just as James says God cannot be tempted by evil, so Paul says God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. In the outward circumstances of your life, He will not put you in a circumstance whereby you can say, I had no chance. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's good news. Not only that Christ died for our sins so that if we fall into temptation, we can be forgiven, but for future temptations in our life, knowing that God provides a way out, knowing that God has provided as much an opportunity for righteousness as we provide an opportunity for evil. And so, there's a certain sense in which you never have an excuse to fall into temptation if God has said that He will always provide a way out. So the question we have to ask ourselves is what are we to do then in conclusion when it comes to our temptations? You strike at the first rising of it, but how do you choose the good instead of the evil? Well, you choose the good because when you remain steadfast under trial, you know there is going to be a reward that far exceeds anything that the temptation from the evil desire could ever offer you that you're actually not going to lose, that every time you give up 
and put to death that desire that is evil and you don't give in to that temptation, you are actually trading it for something eternal, something better, something everlasting. You are saying instead of the penny, I will take the inheritance that cannot be counted. And so by faith, you are actually believing that God is good, that He is faithful, and that you can trust that what He will offer is far better than what your heart, the world, or the devil can offer. And the other thing that you can do is that you can also pray not to be in those circumstances. So when people fall into temptation, we could say, oh, I felt bad. You know, it wasn't easy for her you know, that shop just had that sale on and how was she to walk by and not buy ten pairs of shoes? It was too much for her to bear. Or, you could say, well, was that person ever praying, Lord, lead me not into temptation? John Owen said, he who would be little in temptation, let him be much in prayer. If you are saying, I gave into temptation a time and time again, and we all do fall, and we all need to be covered by the blood of Christ, and the blood of Christ will cover us when we do fall, as long as we go to Him, make no mistake about that, we do need to sometimes ask, are we falling because we are not praying, Lord, lead me and lead others I love not into temptation. And I, I've been thinking about this lately. You know, why haven't I made shipwreck of my faith? Because I easily could have. And part of the answer is that I have prayed. Lord, lead me not into temptation. But I think an even greater part of the answer is that far more have prayed, lead him not into temptation. And so my closing point for each and every one of you is not simply to make this sermon about yourself and your own heart, but you should be praying for your brothers and sisters beside you. Lord, lead him, lead her not into temptation but provide a way out and give them the strength to find that way out and to glorify you when they have found that way out so that they may trust that it is always better to choose God than to choose sin. Because God will always give us something better than sin can ever offer. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for Your Word and we thank You for the trials we do go through, for they provide opportunities for us to display our faith, our trust, our hope, our love towards You. And so we ask, O Lord, not to be led into temptation by our own sinful desires, but rather by the power of the Gospel at work in us. We will be led to greater obedience and love and ultimately led to that crown of life which is promised to those who remain steadfast under trial. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.